Okay, well, I want to thank uh, everyone here for coming, first of all, and especially Marika of the Institute and Nancy Locke uh, for having, uh, you know, asked me to come present some recent research and also to some old friends, Chris Reed and others who are in the room. So thank you all for coming. I also want to say that um, this paper could not have happened without the amazing assistance of people at the Museum of Modern Art, where I went two years ago to look at the two guitars that you see on the screen right now. And I'm extremely grateful to Ann Temkin and Ann Umland, curators there, for agreeing to allow me to examine these guitars, and all the conservation staff, especially Jim Coddington, Erica Mosier, there were others. It was a whole room full of people. And Erica Mosier's photographs are the ones that you will see later on in the presentation. So I'm extremely grateful to all of them for offering their advice. And, and uh, on two different days, we, we looked at these objects together. OK. Um, as most histories of modern art tell us, Picasso's guitar of fall 1912 is the founding work of 20th century sculpture. Executed out of cardboard, paper, glue, tape, wire, and string, um, and later reconfigured in sheet metal and wire, this work is constructed rather than carved or modeled. Unlike previous sculpture of the Western tradition, it defines three-dimensional volumes through a series of planes arranged architectonically against a wall, rather than embodying them in solid masses. As a result, so-called negative or open spaces read as positive form. Um, and as we can see in the articulation of the central body of the guitar through the planes that circumscribe its edges or in the way the bridge emerges from the hollow of a curved plane. In a related kind of reversal, Picasso makes the projecting cylinder stand for the guitar's sound hole, a hole that should open onto the space behind the imagined frontal plane of the guitar. As the artist explained to MoMA curator William Rubin, this formal reversal was inspired by the projecting eyes of a Grebo mask. And uh, let's see that now. Uh, and you see the Grebo mask that Picasso himself purchased in Marseille in August 1912. Um, so that this formal reversal was inspired by the projecting eyes of a Grebo mask, probably the one the artist purchased in Marseille in 1912, although he had already seen such masks in the Trocadero Museum in Paris. And this is what Will, uh, William Rubin writes, quote, Picasso noted that while noses and lips are obviously projecting facial features, he had always thought of the eyes as a receding, hollow feature in sculpture, especially as he treated more the orbit, the socket of the eye, than the eye itself. He recalled that as a young sculptor modeling in clay, he would form it by pressing in his thumb. And I've just brought one example of that, the jester from 1905 on the left. Now the Grebo sculptor, as he pointed out, had systematically indicated both the projecting and receding features of the face by salient forms. This he could do because he was not illustrating a phrase, but representing it in ideographic language. A perfect example of what Picasso found quote unquote, raisonnable, this is something he said about African art, uh, in tribal art. So that was a quote from William Rubin telling you about Picasso's conversation with him and in which he described the impact of the Grebo mask. By representing the eyes as projecting elements, 
the African artist then had inverted the natural relation of depth and surface, thereby revealing that within a given representational system, it is the relational value of elements, not absolute resemblance, that establishes legibility. One might reverse figure and ground, solid and void, light and dark, curved and straight-edged form, and retain the ability to signify. The point was to contest the transparency of conventional visual forms that propose a direct relationship to their reference motivated by resemblance. In contrast, Picasso sought to represent objects in their surrounding space through a simplified repertory of visual signs based on opposing terms, which call attention to the system governing pictorial representation and its paradoxes. These concerns set the stage for Picasso's encounter with the Grebo mask, which in many ways seems to arrive relatively late vis-a-vis -vis the development of cubism. Yet clearly, it played an important role, liberating the artist even further from the norms of Western classical tradition and opening a path toward a more conceptual and invented use of forms, materials, and techniques. It is a curious fact, however, that despite the importance of Picasso's constructed guitar, no one has seriously examined, Uh, no one has yet seriously examined the relationship of the paper and sheet metal versions. Are these simply instantiations in alternate media of a single paradigmatic work? Is the paper guitar really the maquette for the more durable and materially unified sheet metal guitar, as is often suggested? And did the translation involve no significant differences in creative process, in the tools, in the attitudes toward materials, or in the relationship of the object to its earlier exhibition environment, which was Picasso's studio. Does the shift in medium matter? Werner Spies, in his major study of Picasso's sculpture, thought not. He writes, quote, the architectural conception of these works, to which attention has often been drawn, is not the whole story. Architectonics, understood in the constructivist sense, presupposes a certain indifference toward material. This is true in the case of the guitar of 1912, because the aim here is quite simply to interpret a shape, render it three-dimensionally comprehensible, and create from it a materially neutral model." End quote. A similar indifference to materials and techniques informs the way the guitars appear in Pierre Dex and Juan Rosales' catalog raisonné of Picasso's Cubist works, published in 1979, well after both versions entered the Museum of Modern Art. Here, as in many accounts influenced by the dating proposed by MoMA, these two constructions are taken as nearly interchangeable. The sheet metal guitar simply assigned the date of 1912, although there is no evidence it was executed at this time. Indeed, the sheet metal version appears in none of the photographs Picasso took of his studio during the pre-war years. As Christopher Green notes, the most likely date is 1914, given that André Salmon, a friend of Picasso's, um, that his book on the new French sculpture, written that year, although not published until 1919, refers to the sheet metal guitar. And so this would be the first reference we have. Um, yet, Index and Rosalais' catalog 
only the sheet metal guitar is listed, uh, appearing as number 471. In a documentary section, Dex and Rosalet also reproduce two photographs of Picasso's studio at 242 Boulevard Raspail, showing the paper version of the guitar surrounded by papier collé, which simply means pasted papers, and drawings. So I'm going to show you two of these, and we'll come back to these several times. This is one photograph from the studio uh, taken in the winter of 1912. This is another photograph of the studio with different arrangement uh, of figures around it. The titles and catalog numbers of the works on the wall are given in each entry in the catalog raisonné of Picasso's work. These two photographs are reproduced. So the number of each one of these papier collier drawings are listed. Um, and the paper guitar is listed as number 471, that is, as the sheet metal guitar therefore effectively collapsing the two works into a single object. Dex also includes a work he titles Guitar and Bottle of 1913, which incorporates the paper version of the guitar in a larger assemblage, comprising an up, a tilted tabletop with a single bit of paper fringe hanging from its edge at the far right, a small bottle of anise del mono cut out of paper and a paper element representing the wall with its wainscoting to the left. This assemblage was important enough to the artist that he chose to reproduce it in the pages of Les Soirées de Paris in November 1913 as the first of four constructions. Significantly, he reinstalled this very work in his new studio in the Rue Solcher. Um, in 19, either late 1913 or 1914, and it remained there throughout 1915, at least, if not longer. Um, in cataloging this assemblage, which you I hope you can see it way up at the top right of the wall where he's now moved it, um, and we still have no sight of the sheet metal guitar. Um, in cataloging this assemblage, Dex notes that Picasso gave a fragment of the work, the paper guitar, to the Museum of Modern Art and he follows the museum's usage in calling it a maquette for the definitive sheet metal version. Elsewhere in the catalog, however, he also calls it a replica of the sheet metal version, a term that suggests it was made after the sheet metal work, perhaps for the purpose of integrating it into guitar and bottle, which you see here on the screen. As a result, the paper guitar acquires an ambiguous temporal position always too early or too late in relation to the sheet metal guitar. As such, it appears only peripherally in the catalog raisonné, in, in documentary photographs of the studio, and in the temporary assemblage of 1913 that you see here. Um, that's the one way up at the top. In the process, paper, wire, the paper, wire, and string guitar, which represents Picasso's first creative work, in the radical new medium of constructed sculpture loses its claim on history and with it the curiosity and attention of scholars and critics. Industrial sheet metal and wire displace the more fragile, ephemeral, and pictorial materials Picasso initially employed. Picasso's improvisational process, akin to that of a primitive quote-unquote bricoleur who makes do with whatever materials are at hand 
often in highly imaginative and surprising combinations, gives way to the far more difficult and predetermined process of cutting and bending resistant sheet metal and wire in the creation of a single singular autonomous object. In this paper, then, I hope to revise the prevailing interpretive model, which is inspired by structuralism and which has proved highly illuminating when brought to bear on Picasso's play with the relational value of pictorial and sculptural signs. This model has encouraged us to think of materials and techniques as matters of little relevance and has fostered the confusion of the paper and sheet metal guitars. Rather than sever the analysis of form from that of medium and process, I would like to argue that Picasso's use of materials and procedures is central to his project. Yet unlike most modernists, Picasso does not regard materials as endowed with an essential truth, nor does he, oops. Uh, nor does he seek to reveal their inherently expressive qualities. Instead, he views them as open to a range of imaginative transformations, often, often resulting in new, unlikely, and surprising combinations. Rather than choose the best or most suitable materials for a particular task, he seems to have preferred the least adequate, those materials with which it was hardest to work. It is not only and I'll just show you two more works here. Um, it is not only that it is sometimes difficult to know what Picasso's constructions and collages are made of, as when he paints tin or bronze, as you see on the left in the 1914 example of the absinthe glass, which is cast bronze but painted almost entirely in oil, or when he converts the wooden support, when he covers a wooden support with simulated wood grain, um, so these are two examples where he plays around with materials disguising their, their nature or simulating them or representing them. Um, it's also that materials take on meanings within a field of possibilities available at a given time. Their semantic value derives from their position in relation to other materials and procedures that might have been selected. To substitute paper, cardboard, glue, and string for their expected or and highly rep, you know, respected marble and bronze redolent of the classical tradition, or for wood with its associations of primitive or folk culture, carries one set of associations. To do so with industrial sheet metal and wire carries another. In executing his first collages, um, Picasso often employed cheap, popular, or mass-produced objects making them stand in for finer, handmade, and expensive materials. The use of a coarse rope as a substitute for a hand-carved wooden and probably gilt frame, which would have been expected, or of mechanically printed oilcloth, which you see in the lower left side of this uh, work, for a painted version of this material, as in the still life with chair caning of spring 1912, constitute early examples of his iconoclastic attitude. We can glean something of the spirit in which these new practices evolved from a postcard Picasso sent George Brock on October 9, 1912. Quote, my dear friend Brock, I am using your latest paperistic and powdery procedures. I am in the process of conceiving a guitar 
and I use a little dust against our horrible canvas, end quote. This postcard acknowledges that Brock had already begun using powdery substances such as sand, sawdust, and metal filings in some of his uh, paintings as well as in the earliest papier collet, which date to September 1912. And this is a painting, but it does have um, sand up in the central portion in the area of the grapes and also scattered in other areas. The reference to, quote, using a little dust against our horrible canvas suggests a shared desire to contest or even deface the medium of painting, perhaps because its conventions had become too restrictive or unconvincing, because its forms remained virtual rather than available to touch, or because the medium itself was endowed works with a kind of ready-made beauty and prestige. Gino Severini, who had lived in the same apartment building as Brock for several years, and who had also become a close friend of Picasso, reported in a letter to his friend Umberto Boccioni in 1911 that Picasso and Brock, quote, boast of a great disgust for the nobility of colored material and for painting in general, end quote. When Severini reminded Brock that the Greeks added fibers to their sculptural heads to render beards, Brock replied, quote, that he was adopting the principle, but that the Greeks were disgusting because they tended toward an expression of beauty, whereas he didn't want painting to be beautiful, end quote. Severini further explained that, quote, this exaggerated repugnance for beauty and for rich materials that can lead to beauty, end quote, led them to, quote, employ the humblest materials to exalt a genre of intimate, modest beauty, end quote. Further evidence of Picasso's attitude emerges from a remark the artist made to his dealer, Daniel Henry Conviler, upon learning that one of his most loyal collectors did not like the ripple in enamel that he had added to some of his paintings in the spring of 1912, quote, that's fine, Picasso replied. Let him not like it. At this rate, we'll discuss the whole world, end quote. By the spring and summer of 1912, then, Picasso had applied oilcloth printed with imitation chair caning, as we've already seen, commercial ripple in enamel, which you see in this work, um, souvenir from Le Havre on the left. That's commercial ripple in enamel used to paint the colors of the French flag in that still life, um, a canceled stamp, stenciled lettering, and even in one instance, a pastry inscribed J'aime Eva, or I love Eva, to the surface of one of his works. And that, there are several accounts that he had, had bought a pastry that was inscribed with I love Eva, who was his girlfriend, and that it had been affixed right right in that area of that work. Of course, not there any longer. Um, such interpolations of popular, commercial, cheap, and ephemeral materials point to a desire to defy the unity and nobility of oil painting in favor of a new material and stylistic hybridity. Grebo masks, I'll here show you another one also from Picasso's collection. Um, Grebo masks, which typically were executed of a diversity of materials, including wood, feathers, shells, and fiber, and which employed techniques including carving, assembling, and painting, would have provided a powerful model of a spontaneous and inventive creative method unconstrained by Western European 
notions of purity or of genre or technique. Picasso's choice of materials, however, does not suggest a preference for hand-worked organic materials, such as wood, feather, or shells. Instead, he prefers the materials and objects of industrial mass culture, which by the fall of 1912 tend to include newspaper, advertisements, cheap wallpaper, popular musical scores, labels from bottles, and packages of tobacco. These are materials that evoke urban cafe life with its cafes, dance halls, and even its spirit of, quote, je m'en foutisme, which is kind of, I don't give a damn, uh, a phrase that was used to often to describe the attitude of the artists toward their uncomprehending public. Um, the Grebo mask also inspired the unusual presentation of the guitar, which Picasso hung on the wall alongside other masks bits of tapestry, posters, pipes, paintings, and drawings. And I'm just showing you another view of the inside of Picasso's uh, studio, this uh, from somewhat earlier, but just to show you the kinds of things that tend to hang on the wall, and it, which included masks and which would eventually include the guitar. This pictorial presentation is no casual feature of the sculpture, since it is true of all of the artist's cubist constructions, whether they represent musical instruments or still lives. Picasso's photograph of his constructed guitar hanging at the top center of the wall of his studio at 242 Boulevard Raspail in the winter of 1912 demonstrates its kinship with the other collages and drawings also arrayed on the wall and its inaugural role in the invention of papier collet. Two other photographs retain the central position of the constructed guitar but capture different constellations of cubist drawings and collages. The floor of Picasso's studio in these photographs is strewn with other papier collet and scraps of paper, evidence of the new constructive practices of cutting, folding, pasting, taping, and pinning paper, as well as stitching with and knotting string, sometimes in conjunction with painting and drawing. And in this somewhat lesser-known photograph, two additional small constructed paper guitars lie propped against the wall. And I hope you can see these right. We'll return to these later on. But I'd like to put these two guitars into this conversation about what was happening in the winter of 1912 as well. And they've been mostly ignored. Um, so the photographs testify to the rapidity with which Picasso exploited the possibilities of working with cut paper, cardboard, glue, and string. In both two and three dimensions following, in both two and three dimensions following the execution of the first paper guitar in October 1912. I will return to these smaller works, but first wish to look more closely at the paper guitar itself, both as it figured in the various photographs of Picasso's studio that have come down to us and as a material object that Picasso chose to preserve all of his life, only ceding it to Bill Rubin a few months before his death. What, in fact, was in the box that Picasso showed William Rubin in 1972 when the artist promised to give his paper guitar to MoMA? A recent visit to the Museum of Modern Art revealed that the box included not only the guitar proper, but the cardboard tabletop visible in the assemblage guitar and bottle that we've already seen. 
In other words, Picasso had preserved it. And these are all these very informal studio shots, uh, rather MoMA conservation lab shots. Um, and you can see the, the paper tabletop with the darker cardboard being handled by Jim Coddington um, in that photograph. Despite the su this surprising fact that the tabletop still existed, to my knowledge, it has never been exhibited publicly with the guitar, perhaps because it was deemed a peripheral or inessential element of the construction. The tabletop, although stored in the same box with the guitar, was given its own accession number upon entering the museum, thereby affirming its separate status. And one of the conservators joked, I think he was joking, that he almost threw it out um, because he didn't know what it was, except that it did have this accession number on it, so he, he didn't. Um, exhibiting the guitar with the tabletop also makes the paper version of the guitar look less like the metal version, although I think it can still tell us something about that work as well. As we have seen in several photographs, Picasso did hang the paper guitar without its tabletop in his studio. Um, and I just wanted to show you one other, one other photograph of this. Um, but in the more complex assemblage which we've seen, uh, which dates from the winter of 1912-13, the tabletop plays an important role, providing part of the environment of wall and table that frames the guitar. Certainly, it is noteworthy that Picasso chose to preserve this bit of cardboard, which contributes to the formal brilliance of the work. What is the significance of this cardboard tabletop? What are the implications of including it when installing the work? Made of a different, thicker, and darker cardboard than the guitar itself, the tabletop is crudely cut out of what probably was a box, with the artist taking advantage of an existing fold and a side panel reinforced with three staples. So I think you can, hopefully you can see that um, in, the, in the image. Two pinholes in this folded section mask, mat, I'm sorry, match two corresponding pinholes in the lower section of the guitar so that one can easily return the tabletop to its original slanted position. And I just want to remind you of the slanted position where I'm going to come back to this. But it doesn't sit horizontally across the bottom, but you can really line it up very precisely. Um, um, a third pinhole at the far right reminds us that the assemblage of 1913, Picasso had, in fact, also included a bit of fringe um, hanging from this point. So you see that in the more complex assemblage on the left with the bit of fringe hanging uh, from the right side. And what um, similar fringes and tassels, emblems for the decorative edge of a tablecloth, appear in numerous other paintings, collages, and constructions, such as glass and dye, here on the right from 1914. And this is a photograph taken by the dealer Daniel Henry Conviler and preserved in his archives. That bit of fringe cut out of newspaper has since fallen off. So it's only in this photograph that we can see the original appearance. Um, this is what the work looks like now. So just to, um, where are we here? Let's see. In Bottle and Guitar of 1913 on the left, a single ha hanging element functions as a synecdoche for a fringe border, while it also serves to reassert a strong sense of verticality in contrast to the tabletop 
which slides precariously out of its expected horizontal position. Thus tilted sideways, it cannot provide a stable support for the guitar whose frontal plane hovers above it. To further emphasize that the guitar is suspended above the tabletop rather than resting upon it, um, Picasso also angled the tabletop downward toward the viewer so that it begins to approximate the verticality of the wall and, of course, the picture plane. It appears less as a literal tabletop than as a three-dimensional realization of a table seen in modernist perspective, a table inspired by Picasso's own prior still lives or perhaps even by the uprighted tables in Cezanne's still lives. This sculptural reinterpretation of the pictorial device reappears in numerous constructions with subtle but humorous consequences. In glass and dye, I'm now going to show you uh, the current version of it so you can see it, how it, what it looks like with the wood painted. Um, Picasso placed the three-dimensional carved and painted glass so that its base exactly meets the juncture of the vertical plane of the backdrop and the projecting plane of the table. Yet because the table slopes downward, the glass fails to meet its surface and instead casts a shadow upon it. And this is true of almost all of these constructions. It's, it's a very precise move. And I'm just going to point this out. If you, it's hard to see in these photographs, but the bottom edge is absolutely wedged into the juncture of the vertical plane and what you expect to be a horizontal tabletop, except that the tabletop is actually sliding down. And so all of these 3D objects then cast literal shadows. Of course, this shadow is painted. Um, let's see. Um, it thus belongs, the, the glass, both to the virtual world of the picture and to the literal world of objects that cast shadows. Yet we can further complicate these relations and see the picture plane as a material object in its own right, here emphasized by the rough texture of its wooden surface, a surface that can accept other material objects that can be painted or have nails driven through it, while the downwardly slanting table emerges as, a highly, ambi as highly ambiguous, at once real and as if depicted. If we return now to the cardboard tabletop, um, in guitar and bottle, we can also observe that the curve of its edge swells to the left. And I assure you this is the case. It's very hard to see this in a photograph. Um, but it's not an even curve. It just swells out as it comes to the left. An indication that it is represented as if seen from an angle rather than straight on. The left side seems to advance toward us, while the right side, with its bit of fringe, recedes in artificially foreshortened space. This asymmetry is echoed in the other variously angled elements, all of which seem to oppose each other, um, providing contradictory cues to any spatial reading of the object. Because the right side of the table, um, of the guitar, I'm sorry, projects out about six or seven inches from its support, you can see just how thick that right edge is in the, in the detail on the right here. Um, while the left projects only about two inches, the front plane of the guitar recedes markedly to the left, an effect difficult to see in most photographs. This suggests that the object is depicted as if in perspective, 
turned with its right side to the viewer. Yet the possibility, it, yet this possibility is contradicted by the left distal profile of the guitar, whose double curves are larger than their counterpart on the right. The sound hole, which juts out strongly to the right, again, you can't see this in photographs, but it, it really is a, at quite an angle, um, further undermines the suggestion that the guitar turns to the left. So you can get some sense of, of these angles, perhaps, in this view. Um, we might also note that the bridge tilts precariously forward and that the triangular paper element at the top of the guitar veers to the right. Picasso did not allow a single element of the guitar to be governed by the logical spatial coordinates of a grid, but set them all at variance with each other. The tabletop, with its deliberately misaligned an irregular form contributes to the instability of visual cues to depth, alignment, and proximity to the viewer. The tabletop also introduces an alternate surface to which the guitar can be related. With all the attendant ambiguities of the relationship between two-dimensional pictorial form and three-dimensional sculptural form, yet in the end the tabletop, like the guitar itself, is also suspended from the wall hanging over a folded paper base, which is further suspended and set off kilter too far to the left. It was probably a desire to incorporate a reference to this slanted tabletop that led Picasso to include a similarly tilted element at the bottom of the sheet metal guitar. You can see how much it slants downward, just like all those tabletops. Um, like the single strand of fringe in the 1913 assemblage, which stands for the fringed border of a tablecloth, this piece of sheet metal, which drops at a sharp, sharp angle from the bottom edge of the guitar, suffices to refer to a table that the guitar seems both to rest upon and to hover above. Examination of the materials and techniques used in making the paper guitar reveals the simplicity and spontaneity of the artist's process in which a deliberate de-skilling occurs. Picasso constructed the sound hole by wrapping a piece of paper around itself so that it formed a cylinder. He then secured this structure by gluing a thinner piece of paper around its exterior and partly folding it over the interior. The cylinder was further held in place by, by a single strand of twine, which Picasso wrapped around its lower edge and tied in a knot. Picasso's original twine has since been replaced and it appears its loose ends were cleaned up. In the original construction, and again, I'll just show you this once again, I hope you can see two bits of twine hanging down over the front plane. So those have been clipped um, and, it's and, and replaced. Um, so these loose ends were cleaned up. In the original construction, as seen in the studio photograph, it is this very bit of twine that dangles over the front plane of the guitar a visible trace of its rough materiality and improvised technique. This twine invites us to examine the interior of the guitar, to take note of the details of its construction procedures. In order to affix the projecting sound hole to the support, Picasso made a series of short cuts around the perimeter, the bottom perimeter of the cylinder. These cuts allowed him to splay out the lower section, which he then glued to the ground. The three strings of the guitar appear to be electrical wires, in fact they, they might even be telephone wires, 
covered in paint. Picasso simply bent them over the salient edge of the sound hole and then fixed them there with several overlapping and very messy pieces of tape. At the top edge of the guitar, he knotted these wires around a piece of twine representing a fret. The wires can slide back and forth, so their position is clearly open to variation. The twine frets are inserted into two holes in the sides of the bridge, sometimes knotted on either side, sometimes looped down to the next level and passed through another hole just as one threads uh, the laces of shoes. And I have another view of that from this side. You can see kind of sometimes tied on either end, sometimes just looped around. Um, the early studio photographs reveal that one of those strings as well was left quite long to dangle over the side of the guitar alongside the even longer twine used to secure the sound hole. Procedures similar to sewing or lacing a shoe also occur in the joins of the pieces of the cardboard to each other as in the string that is, you know, it's gotten so dark I can hardly see my text. Is there, <laughs> is it, can just, let's say something funny. Okay, sorry, but I'm really having trouble reading. <laughs> it just got darker and darker. Gosh. I'm sorry. Well, there we go. There, wait, I think I, uh, excellent, sorry. Okay, thank you. Just sort of trying to remember what I had written, okay. Um, okay, so you can see these joins where there's actually sewing going on and the knotting. Um, as bits of string are poked through the lower left side panel and then knotted underneath. So you're looking at the left side now, and we're gonna look at the bottom of this, where you can see string just poking through and knotted very, very crudely. Elsewhere, Picasso simply notched surfaces and inserted other elements into them, as in the curved back plane at the right of the guitar, which Picasso bent and inserted into a cut in the right side panel. So you, here you see him using notching. Um, I'm just pointing to this little, little notch, uh, and we'll, we'll have another view of that later. Um. <coughs> Other strategies were even more tenuous. A paper fret was suspended near the top of the bridge, hung over the second fret, and wedged lightly into place. It is now stored in its own box, since it continues to fall off. And so they have it in this very precious box at the Museum of Modern Art, and you open the box, and that is what you see there. Um, finally, we can note that in addition to adopting simple, rather crude techniques, Picasso allowed the glue he used and which must have remained on his hands as he worked to smear various portions of the guitar's surface. Everything is there for one to see, cut and notched paper, glue, tape, sewn and knotted twine, bent wire, pins, even the staples from the original box. One senses that Picasso delighted in working with ordinary, fragile, and partly ruined materials, all the better to defy expectations that a work of art be made out of venerable substances that are already imbued with artistic qualities. He proceeds like a bricoleur, inventing as he goes along. So his process opens onto a field of imaginative discoveries and provisional solutions rather than to one of virtuoso technique. When Picasso later decided to create a sheet metal version of the guitar, 
he had to go forego working with some of the procedures used in the paper guitar. The relatively easy and spontaneous processes of gluing, taping, pinning, and sewing through paper or cardboard would have to give way to other techniques. Probably he had to acquire new tools with which to cut and perforate sheet metal rather than using the scissors that lay at hand. Some devices could be transposed, but their meaning was subtly altered. For example, Picasso again wrapped the bottom of the sound hole with the knotted string, this one made of wire, but it remains loose and does not serve to secure the cylinder's shape. This was not necessary in any case, as the cylinder is a pre-existing element made of a darker metal and already soldered along a single seam. And again, I don't know how well you can make this out. This is a separate piece, and it's already soldered right along there. So this wire is just sort of hanging there. Um, Conviler, the artist dealer, tells us that it was a section of stovepipe. The wire that loops around its lower perimeter is also threaded through a hole in the ground and then knotted behind so that it serves to attach the metal cylinder to the first of two layered ground. So there's a knot sort of sandwiched in between two layers of what is probably iron. Um, similarly, the strings of the guitar, which now number four instead of three, poke through perforations in the metal sound hole and are then bent up along the interior so that they won't pull out. Like its predecessor, the curved back plane was meant to fit into a cut in the projecting right wall of the guitar, but the metal proved resistant to bending that far. Instead, it hovers above its top edge so that the difference in height of the right and left back planes is less marked than in the paper guitar. I think you can all see the cut. You'll see that this cut here and this just, just couldn't be inserted there. Picasso did, however, successfully insert the triangular piece at the top into notches cut into the side of the bridge. So here he does successfully use notching. Although the procedure of notching elements into place had also been used in the paper guitar, here it seems harsher. The rough surface of one piece of paper, uh, one piece of sheet metal inserted into another and held there through mutual friction and tension. Cutting into sheet metal inevitably results in sharper, more angular, and brittle looking edges. The techniques of lacing string back and forth to create the frets, of precariously suspending a fret from a bit of twine, or of sewing and pinning cardboard planes to each other were necessarily abandoned. Glue could serve no purpose. Instead, the metal planes are attached to each other by wires pushed through holes. You can see another one of these here. Then twisted and knotted. The result is an object that is more materially unified, rigid, and impersonal than the paper guitar, an effect enhanced by the nearly uniform layer of rust that now lightly coats its surface. If the sheet metal guitar is more unified than the paper version, it also appears more conservative, given the radical nature of Picasso's experimentation with materials during this period. It seems to have been made to preserve a work that was obviously of great importance to Picasso and which he recognized as inaugural with respect to his subsequent collages and constructions. But in constructing it, Picasso did not take the paper version literally as a model or maquette. He did not, for example, preserve its dimensions. 
but made the sheet metal taller and somewhat narrower. The overall height of the paper guitar is 63 centimeters, whereas the sheet metal guitar rises to 73.5 centimeters. This involved a series of variations in proportions throughout, which are especially evident in the greater distance between the projecting cylinder and the lower edge of the sound box in each work. Nonetheless, the apparent simplicity of the shapes and techniques used in making the guitar has implied that it might function as a model or conceptual maquette for others to employ. It was this very quality that, as Picasso joked to André Salmon, might even be sold. Referring to the sheet metal guitar, Picasso declared, quote, I'm going to hold on to the guitar, but I shall sell its plan. Everyone will be able to make it for himself, end quote. A recent search on the internet turned up this page um, in which an enterprising individual, I wonder if it's an art historian, I have to find this out, um, invites us to make our own paper guitar providing a schematic plan of its elementary shapes. And you have the result of that on the left. And I just, you can all do this. And my husband has made one of these. Um, by way of conclusion, I'd like to offer a few remarks about the two other guitars that lay on the floor of Picasso's studio in the winter of 1912, and these are the ones on the floor at the very bottom. Both works announce their affinities to painting, one by incorporating color in the form of bits of blue, beige, and black paper, and by strings that converge to a single point, and that's the one on the left, um, in mockery of one-point perspective, and the other one on the right by displaying a witty play of literal and depicted forms. If the three strings are now merely pencil lines drawn on either side of a sound hole, the frets emerge from the literally folded planes of the bridge and the pattern of light and dark they establish. At the right and left, Picasso has shaded the silhouette of this guitar, simulating a view of the side and top that makes the object seem to turn in space, its right side receding away from the viewer. Yet the tilt of the central body of the guitar, which, which thrusts its right edge forward, contradicts this view. Both guitars are constructed of fragile materials, drawn from everyday life as well as from art. Strips of colored paper and bits of canvas, fragments of newspaper, mostly affixed to the back, sides, and interior, several kinds of tape, string, glue, oil paper, oil, pa oil paint, paper, pencil, and pins. They are composed of discrete elements whose coherence seems merely provisional, and they each are meant to hang from the wall like pictures, although their apparent frontality, as I think we've seen, is deceptive. As we, as we can note, the guitars of this period can never fully be grasped from one point of view. It is to this moment of working with both two and three dimensions, employing paper, pins, glue, and pencil, that Picasso's first constructed guitar belongs. Its, former, its formal structure and material effects can best be interpreted in relation to the other papier collet that Picasso chose to display alongside it in these studio photographs. So I'm going to just briefly once again put these and then we'll look at some of the works on the wall just quickly. Um, so two from this particular studio wall shot are here. Um, these are works in which guitars stand upright on tables but also lie down on them, in which tables can be simultaneously round and straight-edged, in which objects can be depicted with and without shadows, in which guitars can turn into bottles and bottles into heads. 
the bits of cut paper that invade the picture plane take on similarly diverse roles as figure against ground, and here's a couple more examples, as ground for further figuration, as plane of color, as shape representing atmosphere or translucency, as material object able to cast a figurative shadow. I didn't bring one of those. Um, and sometimes as all of these at once. Throughout this early series of Papier-Collet, here's a couple more, um, Papier-Collet and the drawings, cutting paper becomes an alternative form of drawing, one that tends to reduce forms to simple, flattened shapes, even while expanding the set of meanings they can assume or the transformations they can undergo. The repertory of cut and drawn forms that explodes on the wall suggests a fully developed understanding of the mutability of pictorial signs once they have been released from the task of one-to-one -one description of objects in the world. The sheet metal guitar is more distantly linked to this pictorial scenario and perhaps for that reason is not as problematic for histories of modernist art. Less fragile than the paper guitar, it is also easier for museums to display. Surely it holds its own on any wall, a commanding presence that seems entirely self-sufficient. It is my contention, however, that Picasso did not consider the paper guitar to be a model for another more definitive work when he first constructed it. It was intended to be an innovative work of a new kind, executed in paper, glue, and string. From the evidence we have, it was about two years later that he made the sheet metal guitar. But this act of free translation did suggest the possibility of conceiving the sheet metal guitar as a kind of conceptual model for others to work with. Writing in 1914, André Salmon recalled that visitors to Picasso's atelier were mystified by the curious things they saw there, things made out of oil cloth, packing paper, and newspaper, which they therefore refused to call paintings. Pointing to the sheet metal guitar, these visitors asked, quote, what's that? Do you put that on a pedestal? Do you hang that on a wall? Is it a painting, a sculpture? Picasso, dressed in the blue of Parisian artisans, responded in his most beautiful Andalusian voice, quote, it's nothing, it's El Guitar. Thank you.